We're going to talk more about that. Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 23. Uh, we're taking a break from Elijah. We'll pick back up with Elijah for two more studies and conclude it. And uh, we're looking at Psalm 23, Pathway to Freedom. As we think about the American Revolution and our independence as a nation, I believe that one essential lesson that our nation learned through the fight for independence is that there is a higher ideal even than the state of peace. Peace without freedom means very little. Patrick Henry uh, recognized this just weeks before the Revolutionary War began, uh, years before the Declaration of Independence was voted in by the Continental Congress. He said this, gentlemen may cry peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war is actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the, the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, Almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. And those are, of course, the famous words that we remember from Patrick Henry. I believe that they were truly visionary and courageous words. He understood that the pathway to freedom sometimes must go through adversity. Now, as I think about that, I think of Psalm 23. Now, Psalm 23 is probably the most well-known psalm in all of the Bible. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the famous preacher from Britain, said that Psalm 23 is the pearl of the psalms. The abolitionist Henry Ward Beecher said this of Psalm 23. He said, It has charmed more griefs to rest than all the philosophy of the world. It has remanded to their dungeon more felon thoughts, more black doubts, more thieving sorrows than there are sands on the seashore. It has poured balm and consolation into the hearts of the sick, of captives in dungeons, of widows in their pinching griefs, or orphans in their loneliness. It has made the dying Christian slave freer than his master and consoled those whom dying he left behind. Now, why is it that this particular psalm has left so many Christians in its grip. I believe it's because David saw a higher ideal as he wrote these sacred words, just like Patrick Henry. You see, David understood that the pathway to freedom is not on the road of comfort and ease. He understood that sometimes the pathway to freedom involves walking very difficult terrains. It's not always easy. Sometimes it's difficult. In fact, many commentators believe that David wrote this psalm on one of two occasions in his life. Either one, when he was fleeing from his own son Absalom into the wilderness. Or two, when he was on his deathbed. Now David's point in Psalm 23 is simple yet profound. The pathway to freedom does not have much to do with where I am walking, or even what I'm experiencing as I'm walking. It has everything to do with who is leading me as I'm walking. 
You see, real freedom comes when we live a life of total dependence upon God. And so we're going to pick up, we'll read Psalm 23, and we're going to see five freedoms that come to us when we let God lead our lives. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. As you look at this psalm, first notice that David uses two different metaphors to describe God. In verses 1 through 4, God is like a shepherd to us. And then as you look at verse 5, God is our host. But even before we get into analyzing what those metaphors mean, notice that David says that he is the Lord. Now, that name, the Lord, is the famous name Yahweh that the Lord told Moses, which meant, I am who I am. This was that transcendent name of God, which tells us that God is both timeless, but he's also self-sufficient. So when you think of his timelessness, know that God exists above and beyond and outside of time and space itself. He's existed in eternity past. He will exist in eternity future. He's not bound by what we are bound by. He's self-sufficient, meaning that God needs nothing. Not a thing. He, he doesn't need us to give him wisdom. He knows everything. He needs no power to come alongside of him because he is all-powerful. In fact, even when we come here on a Sunday morning, we're not really giving God something by worshiping him as if he needed our worship. No, if anything, we need to worship him far more than he needs to receive our worship. And get that. David says that this God, this Lord, this timeless one, this self-sufficient one is my shepherd. Now, if you know anything about this profession in the ancient world, it was considered the lowliest of professions. I mean, shepherds did not live a life of ease. I mean, I'm complaining about three nights of camping. These guys spent 24 hours in the, the elements, good or bad, winter, summer. And they were with their sheep at all times, guiding them, leading them, protecting them, caring for them, nourishing them. Now, anyone that looked at that profession, they would just say, who in their right mind would want to be a shepherd? And David tells us in Psalm 23, God does. Jesus told us in John chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd. Now, here's what's humbling about all of this. If God's the shepherd, that means then, by extension, that you and me are the sheep. Now, I don't love the sound of that. 
Because there's probably not a dumber animal on planet Earth than sheep. When you think of sheep, it doesn't inspire you. You don't think of things like strength and courage or academic prowess. Nations do not use the emblem of a sheep as they're marching out to war. As you look at all the logos in the sports world, you have all kinds of animals, including the otter and the beaver, but never the sheep. You know why? Because sheep are not winsome. And yet, King David, sitting in the office of king, that dignified position, that position of power and strength, acknowledged that before the God of the universe, he is like a sheep. And I want to tell you this morning that that is the entry point to the pathway to freedom. You see, to appreciate the benefits of Psalm 23, you must confess that in the great issues of life, you are like a sheep, helpless, dependent, and yes, even sometimes stupid. And it's when I understand that about myself before a holy, timeless, self-sufficient God that I will humble myself and allow him to lead my life. And as he leads me, then he frees me from many of the dangers and pitfalls that this life presents. Notice the first danger is want. And God provides us freedom from want. In verses 1 and 2, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Now, when we read, I shall not want, some people think that that means that God gives us everything we desire. Everything I want. I have to tell you, that's just not biblical. There's a dangerous doctrine that is actually taught all over the world. It's called the prosperity gospel, and it convolutes the nature of what faith is. One of the proponents of the prosperity gospel describes faith like this. They say that faith is a spiritual force, a spiritual energy, a spiritual power. It's something that I can kind of leverage to get what I want. Another proponent of it describes faith as faith in my faith. Not faith in the one who does all of these things, but faith in my ability to believe in him. You know, eight years ago, Katie and I attended a camp, and much of the spiritual content was this over-realized expectation for faith to make things happen. We were doing some high ropes, activities, challenges, that kind of stuff, and you would be up high on the ropes, some 50 feet up, and you're feeling a little nervous, and then one of the staff would look up to you and say, don't worry right now. You just need to look out and, and trust Jesus in this moment. If you believe in Jesus, you're going to get through this high ropes course. And all the time, as I'm looking down 50 feet below, I'm sitting there thinking about that scene of Jesus in the wilderness as Satan tempting him and saying, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and the angels will catch you. Now, another time we went by a lakeside and it was a beautiful lakeside. They had this huge tower with a, a rope swing that was up some 25 or 30 feet. Kids would just launch themselves off the top of that thing, swoop straight down and out and go some 30 feet or so out. Now, this girl makes her way to the top of the tower 
And she's up there, fear just seizes control of her. She is stuck. She's frozen. She's sitting there for a minute. And then two minutes goes by. And then one of her friends looks up the tower and she says, trust the Lord. And the girl's holding on to this rope, shivering. And she's like, I am trusting the Lord. I'm just scared right now. (laughs) So the friend replies back up. She says, let go and let God. Now this exchange goes back and forth for five minutes, more people joining the chorus until everyone around the lake starts counting the girl down. Five, four, three, two, one. And you know what she does? She lets go. Only she didn't let God because she goes straight down and belly flops in the lake. Now, that to me is a perfect image of the prosperity gospel. People name it but never claim it. They don't achieve prosperity like the leaders do. They experience real suffering and they belly flop because they have no framework for dealing with that. Somehow it's their fault. Somehow if they only had more faith in their faith. But here's what God says, God never promises to give us everything we want, but he does promise to care for us by giving us everything we need. And that's David's point, and there's a real freedom in that. There's a real freedom in that because then I realize that I don't need to be anxious for anything. As you look at the next lines, Philip Keller, who worked as a shepherd for eight years, he recorded certain insights in his book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. He notes that when sheep lie down, it's because the sheep feel safe and satisfied. He said, it's almost impossible for them to be made to lie down unless four requirements are met. Owing to their timidity, they refuse to lie down unless they're free of all fear. Uh, Because of their social behavior within a flock, sheep will not lie down unless they are free from friction with others of their kind. If tormented by flies or parasites, sheep will not lie down. Only when free from these pests can they relax. Lastly, sheep will not lie down as long as they feel in need of finding food. They must be free from hunger. Now notice from this analogy that lying down implies the, the freedom from fear, friction, flies, and hunger. This means that God doesn't always give us what we want, but he does care for us physically, mentally, medically, socially. Sometimes God gives us what we need because he knows what we need better than we do. I think of all the times that I've prayed in life and wonder if it wasn't God protecting me from myself. That's the kind of shepherd he is. He doesn't give me everything I want, but he gives me what I need the most, safety and satisfaction. Now let's look at another freedom. Freedom from decline. Look at verse 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now David looking back on his life, had a time where he had entered into serious spiritual decline. It was when he sinned with Bathsheba. And if you know the story, that terrible decision 
escalates into worse and worse decisions. First, he brings Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, from the front of war, and he tries to deceive him, and then he tries to get him drunk, and then when he can't get him to do what he wants, he sends him with his own death note to Uriah, his general, as cannon fodder at the front of the line, which, of course, is just murder. And then he tries to cover it all up. Serious decline, perilous decline. Sheep can find themselves in a similar situation. It's called being cast down. Keller, again, explains that this occurs when they they roll onto their backs and their feet are no longer able to touch the ground. And in a panic, they roll back and forth and sometimes get directly on their back. And in this position, he says, gases build up in the body, cutting off circulation to the legs. And often... It is only a matter of a few hours before the sheep dies. The only way for that sheep to be saved in that moment is for the shepherd to come alongside and restore the sheep. What did God do in David's life? He sent Nathan. Nathan confronts him. David repents. And then he writes this beautiful psalm, Psalm 51 of confession. Now notice that God doesn't condone the evil that David committed, but he does restore the man who is in spiritual decline. And if you've walked with God for any time in your life, you know that he's come alongside of you too in that way. Spiritually, there have been times where we've been on our back, where we've made terrible decisions, and we needed the good shepherd to come alongside of us and restore us. And that's just what he does when we let him. As you look at this, it's not only about restoration, but David also talks of guidance. You lead me on paths of righteousness is the idea of God leading people on the right path. As you look at the terrain of the Near East, there are many paths that form on this terrain. Now, some of the paths happen because the wind blows and it creates what looks like a path. If a sheep were to wander along this path, the sheep would follow along for some time only to realize that they've entered a road to nowhere. Other paths are created by robbers. They try to direct the sheep away from the shepherd so that they can steal the sheep. The shepherd knows the right paths to take. The sheep take the path of least resistance. They want the path that's flat and easy and smooth. The shepherd knows that sometimes the sheep needs to go up and down and around to get to the next feeding ground. Now think about your life. How often do you ask yourself the question, what is God's will for my life? What does he want me to do? Haddon Robinson made this profound observation. He says, God's guidance is not primarily to a place, but to a position in life. So it's not about a location necessarily. It's much more about transformation in your soul. I've come to realize that as I'm navigating this world, asking what God's will is for my life, that 90% of the answer to that question can be found here in the Scriptures. 
You want to know what God's will for your life is? You open the Bible. You internalize the Bible. You ask the question, what's God's will for my life? I'm telling you, stop scratching your head and start opening the book. That's the point. His will for you is that you give thanks in all situations. So instead of bemoaning that situation you're in right now or looking onward and saying, you know, I don't really like where I am right now. I really wish I was here instead. Why not pause and look at the current situation and give him thanks? You're always right where he intends you to be. His will for your life is also your sanctification, meaning he is conforming you to the image of his son. He wants you to look like Jesus in word and deed and thought. Hedden Robinson also said this. He said, if we are what we should be, then God has no trouble placing us where he wants us to be. Now, isn't that just freeing clarity? I don't, I don't have to be someplace else. I don't have to scratch my head and say, what's next? I can open my Bible and discern the kind of person that God wants me to be. Let's look at another freedom. The freedom from the fear of danger. Now remember, the pathway to freedom sometimes involves walking through difficult terrain. Verse 4 Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, the shepherds led flocks in search of grass and water. They had to pass at times into these deep, rugged wadis, which were dry stream beds that came about because of the winter rains. And these were not fun places. They were humid and muggy, they were deep, they were dark. The sheep would have to walk across rocks and boulders and sometimes up canyons to get to the next place where they needed to be. And and worse of all, hiding within the cracks and crevices of these wadis were predators who wanted to tear the sheep apart. Notice in the scriptures that the valley of the shadow of death is as much God's good path for the sheep as the green grasslands that are beside the quiet waters. Oftentimes we, we pray, God, get me out of this place that I'm in. I don't like where I'm at right now. And I want to challenge us. We've got to start praying differently. God, as you lead, I will go where you go. Free me from the fear of that next place where you are taking me. Help me to traverse that place with dignity. Now, why are we secure in this dangerous place? Well, there's a crucial thing that we need to observe in the verbs. If you look at the verbs in the first three verses, those are verbs like he makes, he looks, he restores, he leads. They're all in the the second person. But when we come into the valley of the shadow and death, David emphasizes God's nearness in the midst of danger by changing to third-person verbs. You are with me. You prepare. You anoint. His point. God never asks us 
to journey into dangerous places alone. He always comes alongside of us, even as we face that ultimate danger, death. He goes before us. This week, I read of a pastor who was abruptly brought into this dreaded valley. On a flight that was heading from Charlotte to Seattle, the the plane experienced significant engine failure to the point that the attendants were going around and telling people to brace themselves that the plane may be crash landing. And and you can kind of imagine the, the, the fear that would take over the plane in a moment like that. The pastor looked over and he saw a full-grown man crying. He saw a couple in front of them holding hands and just holding their head down and tucking down together. People all around quietly sobbing as the plane is about to descend. Now he's feeling fear too. He and his wife, though, in that moment reflected upon a catechism that they had been reading for their devotional time, and they answered the question of the catechism to one another. I am not my own, but belong body and soul in both life and death to God and to Jesus Christ, my Savior. And then he asked her the question, did you do anything for God to save you? And she responded, nothing. Nothing at all. Christ did it all. He turned his attention to the people sitting within hearing distance, and he asked them a question. He said, listen, I know that this is a very fearful time, but my wife and I are at peace. Can I tell you why we're at peace right now? They nodded their heads. They said that he could, and he preached a 30-second sermon. He said, the God who made everything wants to make peace with us, even though we've broken his world He loves you so much that he left heaven to make peace with sinners by dying on a cross. His name is Jesus. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is the risen Lord and you will have peace with God. And you know, in that moment after preaching that sermon, he noticed that no one was laughing, no one was scoffing. They just simply received those words from this sheep who had peace because he knew his shepherd. Now, thank God, pilots are trained how to navigate very difficult situations like this, and the plane landed safely. I have to say this, even in that moment, if you knew those things, it doesn't take away the fear. And that really is what controls us when we're in the valley of the shadow of death. But know this, when you feel that way, God is with you in the midst of it. And the scriptures say that he comes in there with you armed. He has a rod to defend you. He also has a staff with a crook to guide you. That's why we need not fear. Let's look at a fourth freedom. Freedom from insecurity, verse 5. Again, he shifts the metaphor from shepherd to host. In verse 5, it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now, I believe that there is just about nothing that can make you feel more insecure than having enemies. That's the knowledge that there's someone who has something against you who maybe even hates you, who backbites, who you have no trust toward. 
Remember, David had lots of enemies in his life. We, we said one of the occasions could very well have been a time where he's fleeing from his life. Who's he fleeing from? Well, close friends, advisors that had been with him for years, his own son stabbing him in the back. Now, just imagine the, the level of insecurity that one feels when you say, who is for me? Is anyone for me? Yet, as David writes, he feels peace. It was as if he was experiencing God's gracious hospitality. In the Old Testament world, to eat and drink at someone's table meant that there was a bond of loyalty and fellowship. So even when his closest friends were against him, he knew that God was for him, with him. In fact, God was his closest and most intimate relationship. You see, when you develop that level of connectivity with the God of the universe, you can face all kinds of adversity. And Jesus promised that to us. He said in John 15, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. There's no greater friend. No greater ally, no greater host than Jesus. And as his friend and guest, Jesus promises to welcome us into our eternal home, which is the fifth freedom, freedom from separation. Verse 6 says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is a beautiful promise from David. It's a, a note of extreme confidence because to be with the Lord in his house is to be with the Lord himself. Uh, how many of you have traveled over the years with business, something like that, a lot of nights out, time away? Now, when you're traveling for business, of course, it's great to go to a hotel that feels something like home. They have good amenities. They have good, comfortable beds, good furniture in the hotel. In fact, the managers that are creating these experiences are doing it so that while you're traveling, you feel like you're at home. But here's the problem. No matter how nice it is, it never feels like home. Why? Because home's not about the furniture that fills the space. It's not even about the space. It's about the people who dwell there with you. And we've been living in a tent. I've shared that with you already, right? And it feels more like home being together in that space than it would if I was in my house all by myself. Now think about heaven. Heaven is not going to feel like home because of the mansions in the street of gold. It's going to be the home because that's where Jesus is. Remember what he said? I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and, and take you to myself that where I am, you may be there also. The pathway to freedom does not have to do with where I am or even what I'm experiencing, it has everything to do with who is leading me on the journey. And David felt truly free because he knew that nothing could separate him from the love of God. 
Dr. Karl Barth was probably one of the most preeminent theologians of the early 20th century. And in 1961, he went to Princeton and he delivered a lecture. And after the lecture, he was asked a series of questions. One of the questions that stuck out over time was delivered by a New York Times journalist. He asked Dr. Barth, in all of your study of theology, in all of your research, in all of your reading of the scripture, what has been the most consequential theological doctrine for you? Now, Dr. Barth, I mean, he was no lightweight. He went into great detail in theological study. In fact, he wrote a 10,000-page systematic theology, light reading if you have time on an afternoon. He, he answered the question this way. He said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Really, when you boil it all down, that's what it's all about. It's the nearness of God, the love of God, the leadership of God of your life. The question before all of us as we look at Psalm 23 is, do you know God in this way as David knows him? We're talking about independence as a nation today. We're celebrating it. We're about to go out and eat hot dogs and hamburgers and fire off fireworks, right? To celebrate all that we have. Well, there's a greater level of freedom than that. The greatest freedom that you can experience in this life is to trust in Christ alone. To let him lead your life. To let him direct your steps and so the question before you today is, have you given him that leadership? And if you haven't, will you let him lead you now? Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? And let's ask God to do that work in our hearts. Lord, I, I come before you acknowledging, along with my brothers and sisters here this morning, that I am a sheep. Lord, I am dependent upon you. And sometimes, yes, even stupid. I pray that as the good shepherd that I would follow your lead, Lord. I pray for my friends here with me this morning that we would see that every path that you take us along is for our good, for our freedom. And Lord, as we, we celebrate freedom today, would we remember that Jesus is the ultimate freedom giver and so, Lord, we pray that we would follow him, mind, body, and spirit, all that we are, and say, as uh, Harry likes to say, whatever, wherever, whenever, I will follow you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for leading us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.